Okay, welcome back to Healthspan. This is part six of Outlive by Dr. Peter Atiyah. This episode is all about chasing memory, understanding Alzheimer's disease and other neurodegenerative diseases. Alzheimer's disease is the most common neurodegenerative disease, but there are other neurodegenerative diseases that concern us as well. The most prevalent of these are the Lewy body dementia, Parkinson's disease, vascular dementia, and frontotemporal dementia. In the United States, about 6 million people are diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, while about 1.4 million have Lewy body dementia, and about 1 million have Parkinson's disease. There are other diseases as well, like Lou Gehrig's disease or ALS, and also Huntington's disease that are considered part of this neurodegenerative diseases. All of these result from some sort of form of neurodegeneration, and as of yet, there is no cure for any of them. Despite the billions and billions of dollars, that have been spent chasing these complex conditions. So let's start with Alzheimer's disease and understand it. The notion that this might be a disease was first suggested by Dr. Aloy Alzheimer, a psychiatrist who worked as a medical director at the state asylum in Frankfurt, Germany. In 1906, while performing an autopsy on a patient named August Dieter, a woman in her mid-50s who had suffered from memory loss, hallucinations, aggressions, and confusion, in her final years, he noticed that something was clearly wrong with her brain. Her neurons were entangled and spiderweb-like, coated with a strange white dental substance which we'll talk about later. Another colleague later dubbed this condition Alzheimer's disease, but after Alzheimer himself died in 1915, the disease had, he identified was, much more, was more or less forgotten for 50 years. And it really wasn't until the 1960s that scientists began to accept that senile dementia was a disease and was not just a normal consequence of aging. Three British psychiatrists examined the brains of 70 patients who had died with dementia and found that many of them had exhibited the same kind of plaques and tangles that alloy Alzheimer's had observed. A bit more than a decade later in the 1980s, other researchers identified the substance in the plaques as a peptide called amyloid beta. Because it is often found at the scene of the crime, amyloid beta was immediately suspected to be a primary cause of Alzheimer's disease. So amyloid beta is a protein that comes from amyloid precursor protein, or APP, which is normally found in neural synapses. And it is cleaved into three pieces. Normally, APP, amyloid precursor protein, is split into two pieces, and everything is fine, but when APP is cut into thirds, one of these resulting fragments then becomes quote-unquote misfolded, meaning it loses its normal structure and thus its function, and becomes chemically stickier and prone to aggregating in clumps. These, of course, are the amyloid beta. Now, there's another protein as well called tau, which is found in normal axons. It helps in the transport of vesicles and helps make up the microtubules that transport neurotransmitters and other things up and down the axon. But when, neural, when tau becomes accumulated into these neurofibrillate tangles, this of course leads to the neural inflammation and ultimately brain uh, shrinkage. And tau was likely responsible for these tangles that alloy Alzheimer's ob observed in his patient, August Dieter. Scientists have identified a handful of genetic mutations that promote very rapid amyloid beta accumulation. Now these mutations, the most common ones are APP, the one I mentioned before, and also PSEN1 and PSEN2, which typically affect the amyloid precursor protein cleavage. Just so something to note that the amyloid precursor protein is located on chromosome 21 
And for this reason, patients with Alzheimer's disease, oh, sorry, patients with Down syndrome have a higher propensity of developing Alzheimer's disease. And some of the scientists have begun to openly question the notion that amyloid causes all, all forms of Alzheimer's disease, citing these drugs failures above all. Now, in, in July of 2022, where when scientists published an article, they really called into question whether this amyloid theory was a real thing. And there was plenty of other evidence calling into question the causal relationship between amyloid and neurodegeneration. Because autopsy studies have found that more than 25% of cognitively normal people nevertheless had large deposits of amyloid in their brains when they died. Some of them with the same degree of plaque burden as those who died with severe dementia. So how are people dying with a bunch of these amyloid beta and neurofibrillary tangles and not developing Alzheimer's disease, while patients who are, have Alzheimer's disease also have these tangles? So there's something going on here. And it appears then that the presence of amyloid beta plaques may neither be necessary for the development of Alzheimer's disease nor sufficient to cause it. So this raises another possibility that the condition that alloy Alzheimer's observed all the way back in 1906 was not the same condition as the Alzheimer's disease that afflicts millions of people around the world. One major clue has to do with the age of onset. Remember that the, his patient zero, August Dieter, she was re relatively young. Normally patients with Alzheimer's disease, they'll be about 65, you know, 75, definitely older than 65. But remember, his patient was in her 50s, and this is a trajectory more in line with early onset Alzheimer's dementia than with the normal dementia that we notice. And a, 20, 000, a 2013 analysis of preserved tissue from this patient, the same one that Alzheimer's worked on, found that she did in fact carry the PSEN mutation, one of the early onset dementia genes. She did have Alzheimer's disease, but a form of it that you can only get, but you can get only because you have one of those highest, like deterministic genes, like like APP, like PSEN1 and PSEN2. And our mistake might have been to assume that the other 99% of Alzheimer's disease cases progressed the ways hers did. So just to quickly recap what I mentioned, the patient that was first discovered to have quote unquote Alzheimer's disease likely had early onset Alzheimer's disease because of this PSEN1 mutation. And because of these idea that patients without Alzheimer's disease also have tangles can suggest that maybe it plays a role in these, maybe the amyloid plays, plays a role in early onset Alzheimer's, but there's, there might be other causal factors related to Alzheimer's disease as we'll get to later. So can neurodegeneration be can it be really be prevented? So a two-year randomized control trial in Finland published in 2015 found that interventions around nutrition, physical activity, and cognitive training helped maintain cognitive function and prevent cognitive decline among a group of more than 1,200 adults. Two other large European trials have found that multi-domain lifestyle-based interventions have improved cognitive performance among at-risk adults. So there were signs of hope and at the end of this episode, I'll of course be getting into the main lifestyle interventions that help reduce your risk of Alzheimer's. 
One more thing about Alzheimer's is the APOE. So we know APOE has a huge correlation with Alzheimer's disease. Regardless of the APOE genotype, however, Alzheimer's disease is almost twice as common in women than it is in men. And it's really tempting to attribute this to the fact that women tend to live longer than men. And just because they are older, they develop more Alzheimer's, not necessarily. But this, also, this, this alone does not really explain the differential. So some scientists believe that there may be something about menopause and the abrupt decline in hormonal signaling that sharply increases the risk of neurodegeneration in older women. In particular, it's obviously the, drop, the rapid drop in estradiol in women with an E4 allele, which may be the driving factor. And of course, we know how protective testosterone and estrogen can be in preventing not only osteoporosis and other things as, as women get older, but also possibly dementia. So to move forward, he also mentions that there's an important section on cognitive testing that patients with a loss of sense of smell might be one of the early signs of Alzheimer's disease. And also, some scientists also are able to notice things in Alzheimer's disease that are very subtle, like changes in gait, facial expression during conversation, and even visual tracking. These changes could be subtle and not recognizable to the average person, but someone more skilled can really spot them. These are really the first signs of early Alzheimer's. The more of these networks and sub-networks that we have built over, life, over our lifetime, like education and experience, or developing complex skills, or speaking foreign languages, or learning a musical instrument, the more resistant to cognitive, de cognitive decline we, uh, we will tend to be. So this is the quote-unquote cognitive reserve. And this is the whole idea of if you learn a new language, if you continuously learn, and you're keeping your brain sharp, you'll have more of this cognitive reserve and hopefully never develop Alzheimer's or at least develop Alzheimer's really, really later in your life. So there, there's an aspect of resisting Alzheimer's through keeping your brain sharp and you know working. So always working and thinking and trying to learn a new instrument, trying to learn a new language, always trying to learn something new. So we'll start by take, taking a closer look at changes that might be happening inside the brain of someone on the road to Alzheimer's disease. How are these changes contributing to the progression of the disease? And can we do anything to stop them or limit the damage? So once we begin to look at Alzheimer's disease outside the prism of amyloid theory, we start to see certain other characteristic findings of dementia that might offer opportuni opportunities for prevention. And so this, this sort of leads us to the next section of alternatives to amyloid. So we focused on amyloid theory so long, ever since alloy Alzheimer's, that we really haven't been focusing on other means of prevention. So research, researchers have also noted problems with cerebral blood flow or perfusion in patients with dementia. On autopsy, Alzheimer's brains often display marked calcifications of the blood vessels and capillaries that feed them. And of course, this is not a new observation. We've known this for some time now, but it was generally considered to be a consequence of neurodegeneration and not a potential cause. And in the early 1990s, 
there was another researcher by the name of Jack De La Torre who did experiments on mice. And in those experiments, he had, re- he had actually restricted the amount of blood flow flowing to the mice's brain. And over time, they had developed symptoms remarkably similar to Alzheimer's disease in humans, like memory loss and severe atrophy of the cortex and hippocampus. Restoring blood flow could halt or reverse the damage to some extent, but it seemed to be more severe and more lasting in older animals than younger ones. The key insight was that robust blood flow seemed to be critical to maintain blood health. So there is something about cerebral blood flow or perfusion of the brain that correlates with Alzheimer's disease. More blood flow, less likely to develop Alzheimer's. And there was already evidence supporting this theory. So Alzheimer's disease is more likely to be diagnosed in patients who had suffered a stroke, which is, you know, the result of sudden blockage of blood flow in a specific region of the brain. Additionally, it's been established that people with a history of cardiovascular disease are at higher risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. Evidence also demonstrates a linear relationship between cognitive decline and increased intimal thickness in the carotid artery, which is a major blood flow that feeds the brain. So more thickening of the carotid artery, less blood flow. So there's an inverse correlation there. Another compelling and perhaps parallel theory of Alzheimer's disease says that it stems from the abnormal glucose in brains. So there's an abnormal glucose metabolism in brains. And scientists and physicians have long noted this connection between Alzheimer's disease disease and also metabolic dysfunction. So having type 2 diabetes doubles or triples your risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. And this is about the same risk as having a copy of the ApoE4 allele. One, on, on a primarily mechanistic level, chronically elevated blood glucose as seen in type 2 diabetes and also, you know, pre-diabetes and insulin resistance can directly damage the vascular of the brain, likely through advanced glycation and affecting a blood-brain barrier. But insulin resistance alone is enough to elevate one's risk. Insulin seems to play a major role in memory and function, which is something new to me. And insulin receptors are highly concentrated in the hippocampus, which is the, you know, one of the memory centers of the brain. And several studies have found that spraying insulin right into someone's nose and administering directly into their brains actually quickly improve their cognitive performance and memory, even in people who have already been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. Now, I remember reading this study when I was doing my research paper in medical school on rapamycin and its use to ameliorate uh, Alzheimer's disease. And I, I didn't read the paper, but it kind of fascinated me. And as the years go on, I'm realizing more and more about the importance of metabolic health and insulin sensitivity to prevent Alzheimer's disease. And it's it should have been more obvious to me, but several lines of evidence converge to suggest that central insulin resistance plays a causal role in the development and progression of Alzheimer's disease. So just like reduced blood flow, reduced glucose metabolism essentially starves the neuron of energy and provokes it also a cascade of inflammation, increased oxidative stress, and also mitochondrial dysfunction, and ultimately neurodegeneration. So of course, at the end of this episode, I'll talk about the importance of having good metabolic health and what we can do. 
So I mentioned a few times ApoE4. It is still not completely clear how or exactly why ApoE4 seems to accelerate other risk factors and also drive the mechanism of Alzheimer's. But we know the ApoE, apolipoprotein E, it plays an important role in both cholesterol and also glucose metabolism in the brain. And it serves as the main cholesterol carrier in the brain, moving cholesterol across the blood-brain barrier to supply the neurons with large amounts of you know, energy that it requires, energy and also fat that it requires. And there's also some evidence that ApoE4 protein may also cause early breakdown of the blood-brain barrier itself. This is something Rhonda Patrick talks about, the importance of having a, a healthy integrity of your blood-brain barrier. Now, curiously, ApoE4 wasn't always a bad actor. So Peter was saying here that for millions of years, all our post-primate ancestors were actually E4E4 carriers. And it was that it was the actual original human allele. And data from present-day populations with a higher prevalence of E4 suggests that it may be it may have been actually helpful for survival in environments with high levels of infectious disease. So children carrying copies of the ApoE4 in Brazilian favelas are more resistant to diarrhea and also infection. And this survival benefit may have been due to the role that ApoE4 is actually an inflammatory, it's, it's one of the more inflammatory of the ApoE4 alleles. And it helps promote inflammation, which may be helpful in fighting infections, but it's very detrimental to, it's very harmful nowadays in modern life when we're not all suffering from diarrhea and we're not all getting infections as a as a you know children so people with alzheimer's disease often have higher levels of inflammatory cytokines already like tnf and il6 in the brains and studies have also found higher levels of neuroinflammation in the e4 carriers so thus e4 itself could help drive the same really metabolic dysfunction that also increases the risk of dementia. And at the same time, it appears to intensify the damage done to the brain by metabolic dysfunction. So researchers have found that in high glucose environments, the aberrant form of the ApoE protein encoded by ApoE4 works to block insulin receptors in the brain, forming sticky clumps or aggregates that prevent neurons from taking in energy. So in a sense, the ApoE4 is inhibiting the insulin sensitivity in our brain. And of course, we know how important it is to have insulin sensitivity everywhere, not just our muscles, but also our brain as well. So ApoE4 likely plays a role in that way. And Peter puts here that, I actually think we know more about preventing Alzheimer's disease than we do about, pre than we do about preventing cancer. Because metabolism plays such an outside role with at-risk E4 patients, our first step is to really address any metabolic issues that we have. Our goal is to improve glucose metabolism, lower inflammation, and lower oxidative stress. One possible recommendation for someone with E4, E4 copies is to really go change the diet first. So focusing on more a Mediterranean-style diet, relying on more monounsaturated fats, and fewer refined carbohydrates in addition to regular consumption of fatty fish. There is some evidence that supplementation with omega-3 fatty acids 
like DHA, is beneficial to maintain brain health, especially in the E4, E4 carriers. There's also possibly the toxic a ketogenic diet. As I mentioned that people with Alzheimer's disease have a hard time using glucose as a fuel source in the brain. So if you can switch to a ketogenic diet, where we focus more on ketosis and making ketones for energy, we don't have to focus so much on the glucose metabolism part if you have Alzheimer's. But of course, we always get, go back to the single most important and powerful tool in our prevention toolkit, which is exercise. And it has two pronged of impact on Alzheimer's disease risk. Number one, it helps maintain glucose homeostasis. And number two, it improves the health of our vasculature. So both are so important, having good glucose metabolism and having good vascular system. Strength training is just as important as endurance exercise. So we want to have steady endurance exercise to improve mitochondrial efficiency, but also strength training is important. So a study looking at nearly half a million patients in the United Kingdom found that grip strength, which is an excellent proxy for overall strength, was strongly and inversely associated with the increased risk of dementia. Another thing you can overlook, and of course, if you listen to my Matthew Walker podcast, you know sleep cannot be overlooked as a possible causal relationship between Alzheimer's disease. So I mentioned over and over the importance of activating your glymphatic system and clearing out a lot of these toxins and amyloids and neurofibrillary tangles and how during sleep, we get more clearance and, and a faster flow of the glymphatic system and help really clear out some of the possible de debris and inflammation that may have been caused. So always focus on getting your eight hours. Now, another surprising intervention that Peter talks about here is brushing and flossing. So yes, you heard that correctly, having good like dental hygiene. There's growing body of research linking oral health particularly, you know, gum health with Alzheimer's disease and also overall health. So P. gingivalis is a specific bacteria that commonly causes gum disease. And it's also responsible for large increases in levels of IL-6. And this P. gingivalis is often found in the brains of people with Alzheimer's disease. So there's possibly a correlation between oral health and also Alzheimer's. One other somewhat recent addition to his thinking of dementia is, of course, saunas. So using saunas, the best interpretation he can draw from the literature suggests that doing four sessions per week for 20 minutes per session at about 179 degrees Fahrenheit is really the sweet spot to reduce the risk of Alzheimer's disease by about 65%. So again, four sessions, 20 minutes, 179 degrees Fahrenheit. He also mentioned some other stuff like higher levels of vitamin D, which have been correlated with better memory, and also hormone replacement therapy. As I mentioned, the giving back of estrogen and testosterone in menopausal women, because as we know, and as I mentioned, there's higher degree of Alzheimer's disease in women, likely due to this sharp drop in estradiol. So broadly, our strategy, our strategy, <laughs> strategies strategy should be based on the following principles. What's good for the heart is good for the brain. That means 
good vascular health. So lower ApoB, lower inflammation, and lower oxidative stress. What's good for the liver is also good for the brain. So metabolic health is crucial to brain health. Time is also key. We need to think about prevention early. And the more the deck is stacked against you genetically, the harder you need to work and the sooner you need to start. As with cardiovascular disease, we need to play a very long game. Now, finally, and most importantly, our most powerful tool for preventing cognitive decline is exercise. We talked a lot about diet in the past and metabolism, but exercise appears to act in multiple mechanisms, as I mentioned, vascular and metabolic, to preserve brain health. So I hope you learned something. I hope you understand the importance of good exercise, good dental health, sleep, and good vascular health through, again, you know, various mechanisms. So I hope you learned something. I hope you enjoyed it. And I hope you tune in next time for the next episode of Outlive. Thank you for listening.